Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Our focus for this episode is the collection of second century Christian literature known as the Apostolic Fathers. In total, there are 11 authors in this collection, nine of whom we will briefly cover today. You'll learn about the earliest Christian documents outside the New Testament, two of which were possibly even written before the last book of the New Testament. What did Christians write about? Although the Apostolic Fathers is far from cohesive, they do give a great window into some of the dominant threads of Christian thought in the generation after the Apostles died. Here now is episode 484, Early Church History Part 4, The Apostolic Fathers. Number four, the Apostolic Fathers. The Apostolic Fathers is a collection of 11 different authors from the second century, more or less, and it contains a variety of different Christian perspectives that later mainstream Christians preserved. I worded that very carefully because what really matters for your book to survive is that Christians later think it's worth copying. And that has to keep happening until we get to the printing press in the 1400s until the internet in the 20th century, right? So it is kind of an arduous process to have anything at all survive from antiquity to today. The fact that we have anything is impressive, in my opinion. So these are called the Apostolic Fathers. We know about other documents not in this collection, both that didn't survive and both that did survive. Okay, but this is a collection of just this one group of Christians. They, they call them apostolic fathers. It makes it sound like they're the fathers of the apostles. That's not what it means. They're called apostolic in the sense that their lives could have overlapped with the apostles. Right? They, were, they were living in such a time that when they were born, an apostle was still alive. Right, so this is just that next generation of Christians after the apostles. And they're called fathers because all people who wrote books that get preserved are called fathers. You know, church fathers is what they call them. I don't, I don't know who decided that. It's just what they, so apostolic fathers is the, the name that is given to this group of writings. So I've listed out for you here 11. This is sort of like a table of contents of the apostolic fathers. I rearranged it based on chronology to the best of my knowledge. Chronology, like I said previously, is, is really debatable. It's really hard to be sure about when a book was written exactly. The date range for these documents is anywhere from 70 to 225. But most of them, if not all, were written in the second century. But they have date ranges that expand beyond the second century slightly in either side. And the only one that's in that later 225 group is the last one there, Epistle to Diognetus. The rest of them will fit in the 2nd century or even the 1st century, a couple of them. So we have the Didache, that's the Italian book there. Didache? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, We say Didache, it it means teaching. And then we have the Epistle of Barnabas, 1st Clement, the Shepherd of Hermas, the Epistles of Ignatius. Keep in mind, this is a collection of epistles. It's not just one book here. 
So, and there are three versions. There's a short, middle, and long version of Ignatius. The short one has three epistles. The middle one has seven. And the long one has 13. So depending on which recension you think is the accurate representation of the historical Ignatius, the Apostolic Fathers could be a, a longer or a shorter collection of books. Okay, Then you have the fragments of Papias. There's 28 fragments of Papias in the Apostolic Fathers volume that I have. And they're like chapters. They're like chapters. And we have Second Clement, Epistle of Polycarp, the martyrdom of Polycarp. Martyrdom is when you die for your faith, when you're executed for your faith. The fragment of Quadratus, which is basically just a paragraph. And then the Epistle to Diognetus. So if somebody says to you, the Apostolic Fathers, this is what they're referring to. If these names seem strange to you, there's nothing I can do about that. Uh, these, these, these are like friends of mine. You know, like I know them. I know their personalities. I've read them a few times. You know, and you kind of get to know this one's got this weird thing over here. And, and this one's, you know, really good at this. What I intend to do with you is just to go through all of these. I'm not going to go through the last two, uh, the fragment of Quadratus and the epistle to Diognetus, because that fits in better with our next session than this one. So I'm going to hold those for later. But my goal is to cruise through nine of these with you. And I'm just going to give you a couple of points on each one. And then if you want to know more about any of these, they're all available freely online at ccel.org. That stands for the Christian Classics Ethereal Library. It's a great website. It's been around forever. And you can get all of these and most other early Christian writings in older translations. So the translations are going to be a little harder because they're mostly done in the 1800s. It's still English. So it might improve your English to read some long 1800 sentences, some 19th century English, great period of English. And if you want to shell out a couple bucks, you can get this version, which is the one that I use for these quotes. And it's called The Apostolic Fathers by Michael W. Holmes. You can get it just in English or you can get English with Greek on the other page. So facing English and Greek so you can see the original language. All right, you ready? All right, we're going to do nine apostolic fathers. It's going to be awesome. Here we go. Number one, the Didache. The Didache was written anytime between 60 and 150. Wow, that's, that's 90 years of a date range. This is a good example of uncertainty. The title of the Didache is The Teaching of the Lord to the Gentiles Through the Twelve Apostles. There's evidence for an early date. One of, the, one of the factors that people point to is the simplicity of the prayers in the Didache. I want to show you one of these prayers. This is Didache 9, 1 through 3. Now concerning the Eucharist, give thanks as follows. First, concerning the cup, we give you thanks, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your servant which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be glory forever. And concerning the broken bread, we give you thanks, our Father, for the life and knowledge that you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. As you can see here in the Didache, Jesus is not God. He's not a preexistent being. He's like David, God's servant. And you find the same language in the book of Acts. Jesus 
is very significant in the Didache. You know, he's, he's the descendant of David, he's the Messiah, but he's, he's not elevated beyond that. There's also a concern to differentiate from Jewish people in chapter 8 I want to mention. It says, chapter 8, verse 1, but do not let your fasts coincide with those of the hypocrites. So, who are the hypocrites? They fast on Monday and Thursday, so you must fast on Wednesday and Friday. <laughs> the hypocrites here is talking about Jews that don't believe in Jesus, and Jews that do believe in Jesus are going to have different fast days so that they are distinguished from them. Uh, just like I said in our first session, I'm here to tell you what they said. Feel free to disagree with anything you want, okay? This is not inspired authoritative scripture. This is what one document says you should do. If you want to start fasting Wednesday and Friday, God bless you. It's not in my Bible, but, you know, maybe it's a good idea. Who knows? There's a twofold structure of leadership mentioned in the Didache. They have bishops as well as deacons, just like in Philippians. And it talks about traveling apostles. This is kind of like one of the main things you see in the Didache that sticks out, where there's like all these instructions to churches on how to sniff out false apostles and false prophets. And guess what the test is? They ask for money. If they ask for money beyond their expenses, just travel expenses, they're a false apostle, they're a false prophet, kick them out. So the, you, the picture you get is of a time early in Christian history when you could reasonably receive an apostle, but you don't know, it's not like you have photographs, right? So you don't know what the apostles even look like. So somebody could come in and be like, oh, I'm the apostle Paul, nice to meet you, right? And how do you, how do you fight against that? Well, the Didache lays out some indicators that this person is a false apostle, which you don't need in the later second century. You only need that really in the first century because all the apostles die by the end of the 90s. The final form of the Didache, though, is probably not until much later. So the theory, the reigning theory, and these theories can all be edited and, and changed over time, but the reigning theory is that a, a good chunk of the Didache was written very early like 60, 70, 80 A.D., somewhere in that period before the apostles have even died. And then, later on, it was edited and other stuff was added in or removed until we get the present form that we have today that survives. So, because it has a composite nature, it's very difficult to tell exactly how old it is. And it wasn't even discovered until 1873. Isn't that crazy? Martin Luther had no idea what the Didache said. Like the times when, when, you know, the Reformation was happening and all these big denominations were starting and they're, they're researching, like, how do we reform Christianity back to its earliest, purest, biblical form? They didn't even have this. It just wasn't, the manuscript wasn't known until 1873. It was discovered by Briennios and not published till 1883. And so we have it now and we have it in English translation, which is awesome. It talks about two ways, the way of life and the way of death. And it's very moral. Most of the apostolic fathers are not theological. They're primarily interested in how do I live as a Christian? How do I live righteously? That's what they're instructing people to do. That's their main focus. The Didache also includes a lot of instructions on how to do church. It talks about fasting. It talks about baptism. It talks about communion. It talks about prayer talks about leadership and travelers, and then it has a, an ending that's kind of like a, a miniature version of the book of Revelation. It's just like one 
or two paragraphs, but like it's the Son of Man coming is pretty epic. It's a mini apocalypse. And it has the earliest condemnation of abortion. Didache chapter 2, verse 1. The second commandment of the teaching is, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not corrupt children, you shall not be sexually immoral, you shall not steal, you shall not practice magic, you shall not engage in sorcery, you shall not abort a child or commit infanticide. You shall not covet your neighbor's possessions. And I thought that was really interesting. I remember reading the Didache the first time, and I'm like, what? what is this? Why are they talking about abortion? This is a modern thing. No, it's not. Abortion is an ancient practice. It's, it's something that's been around in, in humanity. And um, infanticide is where you kill a, a born baby, and abortion is where you kill the baby that's not born yet. People will say, well, the New Testament doesn't say anything about abortion specifically, and that, that's true. In fact, the Old Testament doesn't really say anything about it, except for like there's like one or two sections, and there's like a translation question, right? So it's, it's not as cut and dry as you might think, but the earliest Christian document we have outside of the Bible mentions it as not something they're arguing for, trying to prove, but like an obvious sin in a list of other sins that you, if you were going to follow the way of life, you would not do. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Speaking of research, I want to share with you a resource that I think is really helpful. It's helped me a lot over the years, and I highly recommend it to you. It's a book called A Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs by David Berceau, spelled Burkot, B-E-R-C-O-T, but pronounced Berceau. And this book is so good. It's a book where you can look up a topic, and he gives you little quotes short quotes from all these different church fathers from the 2nd century, the 3rd century, and the very early 4th century. He's working with a a group of texts that all happened before the year 325, anti-Nicene. I'll get into that later, but it's the earliest grouping of Christian history documents, and it's a really helpful book if you're doing research. Say you want to look up abortion in here. There's a lot of other Christians that talk about it too. Tertullian talks a lot about abortion, and other people do too, in the 3rd century. Or maybe you want to look up the Holy Spirit, or prayer, or some theological topic. He's got everything in here. Not everything, but almost everything. Very thorough guy. That's what happens when a patent lawyer gets interested in church history. You know, he just generates this book. It's pretty cool. All right, let's move on to the Epistle of Barnabas. Super early also, written any time between 70 and 132. The letter is actually anonymous. It doesn't say who it's by. And it's extremely unlikely that it's actually by the Barnabas that traveled with Paul. Typically, church historians refer to the author of this book as pseudo-Barnabas. We do that a lot in church history. <laughs> Anytime there's a doubt about somebody's authorship, we just add the pseudo in front, and then it's like, keep on trucking. The Epistle of Barnabas is what the book is called, but the author is typically referred to as pseudo-Barnabas. And this person is thought to be Alexandrian because of the style of writing and of the type of reading of Scripture that he uses. And he comes from a period when there's strong competition between the church and the synagogue. So it's that early period before a parting of the ways when Jewish Christians and Jews, 
Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians, there's a lot of interaction between these groups. He talks about the question of how should Christians think about the Old Testament? This is a huge, extremely significant topic. I was just thinking about this on the car right here. This is, this is probably, at least I'll speak for myself, one of my most overlooked uh, aspects of seeing the categories, because I love categories, I don't know if you noticed that yet, of early Christians, right? So like if you have some Christians that say, all right, as Christians, how do we deal with the Old Testament? They say, all right, read it literally and, and do it. Who's that? The Jewish Christians. They're actually living the Old Testament. Then you have somebody like Barnabas comes along and he's like, this is all metaphorical. You need to read it spiritually, not according to the letter. This is ridiculous. You have totally missed the whole point of the whole thing. Until Christ came, none of us knew anything, and now I can tell you what it really means. Read it spiritually or metaphorically or allegorically. That's what he's going to bring in. Marcion said, go ahead and read it. Read it literally. Read it spiritually, whatever you want, but it's talking about some other God. Who cares? And uh, you have all these different approaches to answering the question, as Christians, what do we do with the Old Testament? Marcion would say, not in my Bible. So it's not his problem. But Barnabas is going to be a little more sophisticated. I'm going to show you an example of this. Barnabas chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. Again, Moses says, eat anything that has a divided hoof and choose the cud. Now, when I show you these words from Moses... You are thinking, all right, you've got all these different animals in the world. Some of these animals have a divided hoof, and they chew the cud, like cows. And others don't, like pigs. So you, you can eat cows, but you can't eat pigs. That's just like the face value reading of Leviticus 11, right? You, you, you can eat certain clean animals, and not other, but that's not, that's not what it really means. He's going to tell you what it really means. You ready for this? All right, back to Barnabas. Why does he say this? Why does Moses say this? Because when it receives food, it knows the one who is feeding it, and relying upon that person appears to rejoice. He spoke well with regard to the commandment. What then does he mean? Associate, this is what it really means, associate with those who fear the Lord, with those who meditate in their heart on the special significance of the word that they have received, with those who proclaim and obey the Lord's righteous requirements, with those who know that meditation is a labor of joy, who ruminate on the word of the Lord. But why does he mention the divided hoof? Because the righteous person not only lives in this world, but also looks forward to the holy age to come. Clear? So when he says you're supposed to eat of the animal that chews the cud, that's not talking about eating. That's talking about thinking, chewing mentally, on the scriptures. And when it has a divided hoof, what it really means is you have to recognize that you not only live in this world, but you're looking forward to the age to come. So you have this dividedness to you. That's the way Barnabas is reading the Old Testament, allegorically. He says that Israel forfeited the covenant because of idolatry. God does not have a covenant with the Jews anymore. That's what he would say. It's forfeited through disobedience and ignorance. They read the Torah literally, can't believe they did that. They should read it spiritually like he's doing. This is a classic move you see in, a, in a, a metropolis like Alexandria, which is centered on a lot of education and learning and scholarship. 
that was already happening at the time. In fact, there was another very important person who may have overlapped, his life overlapped with the time of pseudo-Barnabas, and it's a Jewish man named Philo, who also lived in Alexandria. He, he's a, around the time of the Apostle Paul. And Philo does the same kind of move, not quite the same as this, but very similar type of move over and over, looking at how the Old Testament really is talking about something else. And that's this allegory. We're going to talk more about Philo later, but I just wanted to mention him in the context of Barnabas because they are doing a similar kind of thing. He also, Barnabas also has the way of light and the way of darkness. It's very similar to the Didache. So you have these two paths, a path of righteousness, a path of wickedness. There's a struggle for good and evil in the present age, and Barnabas anticipates the soon arrival of the kingdom of God in the age to come and the judgment. All right, next one up, First Clement. First Clement is a document dating from anywhere from 80 to 100. Typically, people date it to 96, but you know there's some question about that. First Clement is a letter written from the Church of Rome to the Church of Corinth because the Corinthians were still knuckleheads. Even a, a generation after Paul had written to them his letters, you know, we have 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, the craziest church in the whole Bible, right? They're doing everything wrong. So, and they have factions and sects and, you know, I'm of Paul and I'm of Cephas, right? Well, th that same sort of thing happened again and the younger leaders kicked the older leaders out of the church. And so Clement is writing this letter to the church of Corinth saying, guys, we need to have peace, we need to have harmony, we need concord. That's what we need. Bring them back in. Let's work this out. And so that's what this letter is all about. And they also, the, the Christians in Rome also dispatched mediators to try to help the church of Corinth figure this stuff out. We don't know how the Corinthian church reacted to this letter. We just have this letter just hanging out there. So we know a little bit about, you know, it's, it's like the document's like a little window into a time period when something happened, and that's all we know. So the man, Clement, was one of the leaders of the church at Rome, or one of the churches at Rome at least, and there's no reason to believe it's the same Clement. Sometimes people say, oh, that's got to be the Clement Paul mentioned in Philippians 4.3. Maybe, but there's no reason to believe that either. So it's like two people who have the same name doesn't mean they're the same person, right? It's an edifying letter. It's worth your time. I'd recommend it. It's, it's, a, it's a good letter to read. The Didache as well. I'd recommend that as well. It's about 30% longer than Romans. Romans is fairly long, right? This is about 30% longer than Romans. And it always maintains a strong distinction between God and Christ. Let me show you this. 1 Clement 59.4, we ask you, this is a beautiful prayer, we ask you, Master, to be our helper and protector. Save those among us who are in distress. Have mercy on the humble. Raise up the fallen. Show yourself to those in need. Heal the sick. Turn back those of your people who wander. Feed the hungry. Ransom our prisoners. Raise up the weak. Comfort the discouraged. Let all the nations know that you are the only God and that Jesus Christ is your servant and that we are your people and the sheep of your pasture. Isn't that beautiful? It's a beautiful prayer uh, that we find in 1 Clement. Once again, uh, expressing a very 
uh, low view in the, compared to later Christians of Christ, but still in tune with Scripture. Because I mentioned in the book of Acts, Jesus is called a servant. All right, on to the ne- next one, the Shepherd of Hermas. The Shepherd of Hermas was written anywhere between 100 and 150. Hermas was a slave who had been freed. So whereas Clement is written by a Roman Christian who is part of the elite, part of the leadership, more sophisticated, Hermas is also from the same group of churches in Rome, but from the lower class. And you might ask, well, how did Hermas learn to read and write if he's a slave who had been freed? Well, sometimes a household owner would train up a slave in learning, in education, so that the slave could then educate the children. This is a somewhat common practice. In fact, we have a philosopher named Epictetus who was trained up as a slave and became a famous philosopher later on, uh, even though he was a slave. So uh, that's entirely possible. He could have learned some other way. Maybe he was just a precocious fella that wanted to learn to read. He wrote this book called The Shepherd of Hermas. It was extremely popular. When I read this book, I'm amazed it was so popular. I, I do not enjoy this book. It's very long. <laughs> it's terrible to say my opinion to as we go. It's very long. It's very tedious. But the early church was just like, man, I need some more Shepherd of Hermas. We just, we just love this book. It was so popular. There are more copies of Hermas than some of the New Testament books in the ancient manuscripts. They just loved it so much. Uh, though it was not recognized on the level of the apostles because Hermas lived later than the apostles. It's an interesting genre of revelations and visions. And so he's got five visions, 12 commandments, and 10 parables in this book. And uh, Hermas has these like angelic guides that interact with him. And they're so rude. They're always insulting Hermas for being dumb and not listening. <laughs> it's hysterical. One of these is the angel of repentance, and that angel appears to Hermas as a shepherd, and that's where the title comes from. It's uh, the shepherd who appeared to Hermas in this vision. The shepherd of Hermas deals with the issue of sin and repentance. That's really the issue, the main issue of the book. And some have suggested that this might actually be a Jewish Christian book, that he might have been a Jewish Christian because of some of the things it says about the Torah. And really the question is, after you're baptized, can you sin? Or if you sin, are you lost forever? That's the driving question that Hermas is dealing with. And his answer is, yes, you can be forgiven. You can be forgiven, but only once. And for a limited time only. And that is a medium, that's a moderate medium position between the people that are saying, oh, you can sin as much as you want, and people that are saying, after you're baptized, you can never sin again. You have to be perfect as your Lord is perfect. Uh, so he's kind of staking out a middle position, which to us today sounds totally radical, which is hysterical. Anyhow, Hermas had an interesting spirit-centered Christology. I want to read to you this one quote, and it's so, it's so puzzling. It's weird and it's cool and it's interesting, so I'm going to read it to you. And it's a a quote that tells us about his Christology, what he believed about Christ. At least that's what I think it's talking about. The pre-existent Holy Spirit, which created the whole creation, God caused to live in the flesh that he wished. 
but I think he's talking about Jesus there. This flesh, therefore, in which the Holy Spirit lived, served the Spirit well, living in holiness and purity without defiling the Spirit in any way. So because it had lived honorably and chastely and had worked with the Spirit and had cooperated with it in everything, conducting itself with strength and bravery, he chose it as a partner with the Holy Spirit. For the conduct of this flesh pleased the Lord, because while possessing the Holy Spirit, it was not defiled upon the earth. So I think it's talking about Jesus because he never sinned. Verse 7, So he took the Son and the glorious angels as counselors in order that this flesh also... This is a different Son than Jesus. Okay, you have to kind of read the whole section. In order that this flesh also, having served the Spirit blamelessly, might have some place to live and not appear to have lost the reward of its service. For all flesh in which the Holy Spirit has lived will, if it proves to be undefiled and spotless, receive a reward. So uh, you can see the intense moralism of Hermas. Like, you got to be righteous. You know, just kind of like a hellfire preacher telling people and sort of shaking them by the shoulders. Like, look at Jesus. He always yielded to the Spirit. He never gave in. He wasn't defiled. Come on. You know, it's kind of the, the feeling I get. Reading. It could be like a pop-up book, Shepherd of Hermas, and the hand just slaps you in the face and tells you to repent, you know. <laughs> From this quote, uh, people do say that he was probably a Unitarian or a dynamic monarchian as well uh, because of this. All right, on to the next one, the Epistles of Ignatius. He wrote between 108 and 160. He was the bishop or overseer of the church of Antioch. Antioch was super important in early church history in the time of Paul because that was his home base out from which he did his missionary journeys. So this is that same church a generation later that Ignatius is there. And Ignatius gets arrested. It's not clear why he got arrested, but he gets arrested by the government and he's sent to Rome. And as he's on his way to Rome, he writes a series of letters and then presumably gets fed to the lions in the Colosseum. We don't know for sure, but presumably that's what happened to him. Uh, we know that he was escorted by 10 soldiers and that during his journey he wrote to a number of churches and individuals. This is the most complicated of all the apostolic fathers because there, like I mentioned in the beginning, there are three different versions of the letters of Ignatius. The long recension, the middle recension, and the short recension. The long recension has his letter to the Ephesians, to the Magnesians, to the Trollians, to the Romans to the Philadelphians, to the Smyrnians, to Polycarp, to Mary of Cassabola, from Mary of Cassabola, to the Tarsians, to the Antiochians, to Philippians, and to a man named Hero. And then that grouping of the first seven are in the middle of recension as well, but none of numbers 8 through 13 there. And then the short recension just takes Ephesians, Romans, and the letter to Polycarp. And these are different than each other. It's not just that we have three manuscripts and one of them has 13 letters, one has seven, and one has three. It's way more complicated than that. We don't have very many manuscripts at all, first of all. The manuscripts we have are from, the earliest is from the 11th century. So that's almost 11 centuries or 10 centuries from the writing. It's not that great. I mean, it's not, it's not awful, but it's, it's not that great. We'd rather have earlier manuscripts that had less of a time period in between them. 
John Calvin, no less than John Calvin, said of it, the letters of Ignatius, he called them rubbish published under Ignatius's name. So there's been a lot since the 1500s till today, a lot of scholarly debate which letters are legit. And if you read the long recension of his epistle to the Ephesians and the middle recension, they're different. This letter itself is longer than this letter. And this letter is shorter than that letter, than the middle one. Okay, So it's not just that there are fewer letters in each recension, it's that the length of each letter is shorter in the middle than the long one. So there was a massive, let me, I'm just going to oversimplify this just to, to make the point. There was a massive controversy in the 4th century over whether or not Jesus is eternal or has a beginning. Is Jesus God in the sense that the Father is God? Is he God in a lower sense? These are the questions they're asking in the 4th century. Huge controversy over it. Lasted for 60 years, from 318 to 381. More than 60 years, I think. Uh, but <laughs> it lasted all this time. They finally settled on a solution. During that period, we know somebody monkeyed with the letters of Ignatius. We just don't know for sure how much, okay? So uh, typically, the long recension is considered to be on the side of the Arian Christians, and the middle is considered to be on the side of the Nicene Christians. And sometimes scholars will say, oh, well, the middle is the right, is the right one because it agrees with their beliefs. And they, they posit the idea that, well, the long recension is corrupted, and the short recension is corrupted, but the middle is untouched. It's pure white snow. Never a foot has stepped in it. And it's like, is that really a reasonable hypothesis to say that nothing has ever touched the middle of recension at all, and that's the original? I don't know. I think it's a bit of a stretch. But it's, it's, a, it's a genuine puzzle that scholars work at. Here's a little sample from the middle of recension of Ephesians 7.2. There is only one physician who is both flesh and spirit, born and unborn, God in man, true life in death, both from Mary and from God, first subject to suffering, and then beyond it, Jesus Christ our Lord. So you can see here this phrase, born and unborn. People look at that and they're like, oh, there must be two natures in Christ. Right? So it really kind of fits with later Christian categories for thinking about Christ. But that, that's not necessarily what he meant in his own time. And then the idea that God in man, right? That could be that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, that God was indwelling Christ. Or it could be that God was a human being. And that's kind of the way that people later on will take it to mean. Polycarp 3.2 from the middle recension. Be more diligent than you are. Understand the times. Wait expectantly for the one who is above time, the eternal or timeless, the invisible, who for our sake became visible, the intangible, the unsuffering, who for our sake suffered, who for our sake endured in every way. So we know for sure that the middle recension of Ignatius is totally comfortable with calling Jesus God. He does it several other places. Totally comfortable recognizing that Jesus pre-existed. Uh, we also find pre-existence in the epistle of Barnabas, and Second Clement. Well, I haven't covered Second Clement yet, but so there are three of the apostolic fathers that specifically mention pre-existence pretty clearly, and others that kind of like go out of their way not to mention it. Okay, and that's the thing about the apostolic fathers—they disagree with themselves. 
about a lot of things, not just who Jesus is, but whether or not you should keep the law. Look, the Didache is a Jewish Christian document. And the uh, Epistle of Barnabas is saying Jews are silly to believe in the law at all. They should have never believed in the law. What were they thinking? Right? So, and this is, so it's just an artificial collection of, of books is what I'm saying. Ignatius also talks about one bishop ruling over each church and that one church ruling over the surrounding churches. Okay, so you have what develops, it, the technical term for it is monarchical episcopate. Monarchical, one ruler, episcopate, overseer. And so you have, Ignatius himself was from Antioch. Antioch was a big city, an important church. So Ignatius, as the bishop, is going to settle any problems that arise by his authority. And those other churches in the region of Antioch all need to listen to whatever Ignatius says. That's what he's arguing for. The fact that he's arguing for it tells us two things. One, people didn't already believe that. And two, this is the view that, that he thinks is going to solve the problem. What's the problem? Disunity. You have some people that have different beliefs. Ignatius argues hard against docetism. He says, no, Jesus was a physical human being. Don't think he's a spirit creature. He's not a spirit, spirit. He's a physical human being. So if everyone in your region will just obey the head bishop, it's a really convenient and effective way to preserve unity. Okay? But there's huge downsides to it too. Like, what if that guy's wrong? Right? What do we do then? So that's his solution to the problem. And the other thing about Ignatius I just want to mention is that he kind of has a weird eagerness to get executed for his faith. Like he's looking forward to it too much. And he's like, oh, I am the wheat of God, which is going to be ground into the flour in the teeth of the lions. And you're just like, what? And he even like goes out of his way to tell the Roman church, don't try to get me out of this. Like I want, I want to die for Christ. So take that for what it is. Definitely a courageous person. Then we have the fragments of Papias. Papias wrote a book called The Expositions of the Sayings of the Lord, written around the year 130. I don't remember exactly why this has such precision to just one year, but uh, that's the date that I had in my notes. Papias, according to a later Christian named Irenaeus, knew the Apostle John and was a contemporary of Polycarp. And so th there's three of them. Uh, Ignatius, Polycarp, and Papias that are associated with John. It might not be John the Apostle, it might be John the Elder. There's some disagreement on that. Some people think they're the same person. I think they're two different people based on what Papias says. Papias, his book doesn't survive, but others quoted him, especially the church historian Eusebius. So, the fragments are quotations that survived in other works, and they're all collected together here because he uh, wrote in that early period. Papias talks about oral tradition and how he trusts someone over a book. Let me read to you what he says, Papias 3, 3-4. I will not hesitate to set down for you, along with my interpretations, everything I carefully learned from the elders and carefully remembered guaranteeing their truth. Do you see that sentence? He carefully learned it, he carefully remembered it, and he's guaranteeing their truth. This guy's like an investigative reporter, right? For unlike most people, 
unlike most people. I did not enjoy those who have a great deal to say, but those who teach the truth. Nor did I enjoy those who recall someone else's commandments, but those who remember the commandments given by the Lord to the faith and proceeding from the truth itself. And if by chance someone who had been a follower of the elders should come my way, I inquired about the words of the elders, what Andrew or Peter said, or Philip or Thomas or James or John or Matthew or any of the Lord's disciples. And whatever Aristion and the elder John, the Lord's disciples, were saying, for I did not think that information from books would profit me as much as information from a living and abiding voice. So Papias doesn't trust books as much as he trusts people, which is the exact opposite of us today. Today, if it's published in a book, it's got to be true. Look, it's got an ISBN number, it's got a barcode, some big complicated institution bankrolled this thing. It's got it's to be true. I bought it in the airport. It's got to be true, right? That's what we think. It's crazy, but that's what we think. Papius is like, anybody can write a book and put anybody's name on it. How do I know if that person really wrote that book or if what they wrote is really true? I want to sit down, I want to look in their eyes, and I want to see the person that I'm talking to. And then, ironically, he writes a book. <laughs> he writes a book of all the sayings of Christ and some of them are not in the Bible. There are other sayings, believe it or not, there are other sayings of Christ that aren't in the Bible. There are probably many things Jesus said that weren't recorded in Scripture. And Papias is, is on the hunt. He lives in Hierapolis, a major city with a major road going through it. He's, he's a leader of the church there. And every time some Christians pass through, he's like, yo, who do you know? You know Philip? What about Bartholomew? I've always been trying to meet somebody that knew Bartholomew. Do you know him? And he's, he's, he's trying to collect all this stuff together. It's pretty cool. We'll get back to Papias later on. To 2 Clement. 2 Clement is not a letter, and it was not written by Clement. It's actually a sermon, and it just happened to be collected in the same piece of paper as 1 Clement. So it got labeled as 2 Clement, or the next paper after that. Right? I don't know if it's actually a paper or not, probably a parchment, but... You get my point. It was, it was collected along the same time, and so it ends up in, in manuscripts right after 1 Clement, but it's probably not Clement. Uh, most people do not think it's Clement. People are not sure when it was written, so they give a date range, 130 to 160. It's an exhortation. It's actually a, a sermon based on Isaiah 54. And the only thing I'm, I'll mention about this is that 2 Clement 9.5 clearly talks about the idea of pre-existence again, because this is something that uh, does come up. We're going to look at it later. But 2 Clement chapter 9, verse 1 says, And let none of you say that this flesh is not judged and does not rise again. Think about this. In what state were you saved? In what state did you recover your sight, if it was not while you were in the flesh? We must therefore guard the flesh as a temple of God. For just as you were called in the flesh, so you will come in the flesh. If Christ the Lord who saved us became flesh even though he was originally spirit, and in that state called us, so also we will receive our reward in this flesh. Therefore, let us love one another so that we all may enter into the kingdom of God. So he's clear on the body being good, God's intention to resurrect the body. And he even has this phrase, which is very biblical, enter into the kingdom of God. 
which we're going to come back to later as well. But the thing I wanted to point out to you here is this belief that he has that Jesus became flesh, or Christ became flesh, even though he was originally spirit. If you recall, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says the flesh it comes first and then the spirit. <laughs> here he says the spirit comes first and then the, the flesh. You can see this idea of gaining in popularity. Polycarp to the Philippians is another document, and it pairs well with the martyrdom of Polycarp. So Polycarp to the Philippians is a letter that Polycarp wrote to the church at Philippi, and he talks about correct behavior, and there's an issue with a leader there, a greedy elder named Valens, and he's, he's trying to help the church and straighten it out. And then later on, Polycarp, who was a leader of the church in Smyrna, gets arrested, and we get the story of how he was captured by the authorities, interrogated by them, how he was then publicly executed for being a Christian. That's in the, the martyrdom of Polycarp. And we're going to come back to that later when we do um, a session on persecution, so you won't miss out on that. All right, let's review. The Apostolic Fathers is a diverse collection of Christian books from the second century. In a sense, there's no reason why these books should be collected in the same volume, but they are. So this is just the way it is, but they have many different voices and many different things to say. There's a major focus on Christian morality, and I probably undersold that, but like, there's so much focus on like, just living righteously, just doing the deeds of a true Christian. They talk about their identity vis-a-vis Judaism, vis-a-vis -vis face-to-face. Like, so in contrast to Judaism, who are we as Christians? Do we believe in the Old Testament? Do we not believe in the Old Testament? If we do, what does it mean? Dealing with Judaism is a major topic of interest because you still have a lot of connection between Jewish Christians and Judaism, uh, especially depending on when things are written. If it's be before the big war in 132 to 135, that war really blew things apart. And there were a variety of views about Christ in this collection of documents as well. And they talk about authenticity. Papias says, I want to see his eyes. I want to hear what he has to say. And then I'll believe it. Maybe. They were concerned about unity. Clement writes this letter to this church because they're having disunity. Ignatius says, we need one bishop to control everyone because then we're, then we're going to have unity. Uh, so there, there's a concern for unity because there are divisions in Christianity that I already talked to you about last time, like Marcion, like Valentinus, like a number of these different Gnostic groups that are running around and grabbing people. And last of all, we have the issue of martyrdom, which I, I didn't write down here, but martyrdom is, is, is very clearly held up as a heroic Christian act. If you can die for your faith, not seek it, but if you get captured and then you get executed for your faith, you end up with the highest status any Christian could ever hope to achieve outside of Christ himself, because you've died for your faith like Christ himself. So they have a very positive view of martyrdom, which is very unusual for us today. We would say, oh, it's such a shame. It's such an injustice. We, we must rally and, and petition and do what we can to make sure this never happens again. They're just like, well, uh, can I die next? You know, <laughs> they have a very different perspective of it. So we still have two more to look at. We've got the fragment of Quadratus and the epistle to Diognetus. But I think 
Uh, getting through nine authors is pretty darn good. And we'll handle these later when we go over the apologists. I'm, I'm going to cover the apologists and the heresy hunters, not next time, but the time after that. Next time, we're going to look at the Gnostics and the Valentinians. It's going to be epic. So come back for that as we continue through our journey of early church history. Well, that brings this session to a close. If you'd like to leave any feedback, comments, or questions, come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 484 on the Apostolic Fathers and leave your feedback there. In our next episode, we're going to look at the Gnostics and the Valentinians who were around in the same period as the Apostolic Fathers, but who believed wildly different things. This will be a foray into a very philosophically dense and complicated belief system. It's somewhat Christian, but very much anti-biblical, if I can put it that way. So stay tuned for that next time. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that at our website, restitutio.org. We'll catch you next week, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.